W-A-L-T, it's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20 via the Heritage HA73JR2, the Harrison 32EQ, and the RNC500. Analog tones on a Wednesday afternoon in the moon cabin. Now, Perhaps you're, you're hearing me say the JR2 and you're thinking, Sam, don't they mean Junior? Isn't it the HA73 Junior Mark II, as in the second iteration of the HA73 Junior microphone preamplifier modeled after the famous Neve 1173? Yeah, 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 yeah. Few things about that. I reject the idea that there is anything diminutive about this preamp. We are talking about a fat, hand-wound transformer. I'm talking about when you turn this preamp on, you can actually hear the transformer vibrating, man. It's awesome. And I love what it does to the RE20, and there is nothing junior about that sound. Just because it is a smaller version of the 19-inch rack-mounted preamp, just because it's the 500 series... It's got to be Junior? No. And that is the answer to the question that I know you had about why I'm saying JR2 instead of Junior. Folks, I told the John Stewart story at the Moth this week, and I don't think people believed me. <laughs> it was pretty wild, uh, especially in light of this broader conversation that has been taking place in the comedy and storytelling world, which, for those of you who have not been following the discourse, uh, it was recently revealed that the comedian Hassan Minaj invented a lot of key details in his Netflix specials. And so now there is this attendant conversation about when or if it's okay to tell the emotional truth versus the literal truth on stage. And so that was very much in the air at The Moth this week. And I bring this up because that is what we are going to talk about in much greater detail on Dingmantics this week, which will come out on this Friday. And if you don't know what I mean by the Jon Stewart story, I am talking about the time I almost killed Jon Stewart, yes, that Jon Stewart, with a taxi that I was driving. You can read all about that and more on my Substack samdingman.substack.com. Thank you to all of you who have joined me there recently. We are having a great time over on the old stack. Don't miss out. So that is coming up on Friday, as well as a very special guest on the program. But today on the show, we have David Lawson, one of New York's most established practitioners when it comes to live onstage storytelling and solo shows in particular. I have been following David's work for years now. He's done shows about his battles with insomnia, his relationships with porn and video games, his experiences dealing with anti-Semitic hate groups, and he is about to premiere his latest solo show, which is called Horror Helps, a one-man show about how the fake anxiety of horror helps with the real anxiety of life. 
If you're going to be around New York City on October 19th at 7 p.m., you can get tickets for that show for just $10. I will have information in the show notes for how to get those. David also hosts one of the best storytelling open mics in New York City. Once a month in the back of a bookstore, it is a wonderful community that he has built over many years. The show is called the Astoria Bookshop Storytelling Show. You'll hear us talk about it in this very interview and There are two instances of the Astoria Bookshop Storytelling Show coming up soon, first on November 2nd, and then again on December 7th. Now, David, as you'll hear me describe him in just a second, is also just a a consummate student of his craft. On nights when he is not out performing or teaching storytelling, he's usually in the crowd at someone else's show, which you cannot say about very many performers, right? There's not a lot of performers who are just as dedicated to going to see the work of their peers as they are to trying to get you to come to see their work. But David has that dedication. He has this seemingly bottomless curiosity about what makes a great storytelling performance. And he has an uncanny memory for the details of performances that he has watched. On more than one occasion, I have had David quote details of my own stories back to me that I had legitimately forgotten about. He is a thoughtful and empathetic note-giver, a provocative question-asker. When I talk to him about my own work, I never feel like he's imposing his own style on it, which is also a rare thing amongst performers. Talking to David about my work invariably not only makes it better— but it makes me excited to get back to doing it, to return to the notebook or the stage and work on the things that he makes me think about. And for all of these reasons, I was very excited to welcome him here to the studio for this episode of The Midnight Disease on WALT. David Lawson, welcome to The Midnight Disease. Thank you so much, Sam. It is wonderful to be here with you today. Um, I'm thrilled to be talking to you because you, I think of as someone who is not only a practitioner of this medium that we both love, storytelling, but also a a student of it. Um, And I want to get into all of that. But the first question I always like to ask is... If you think of this phrase, the midnight disease, and you think of your process when it comes to generating work, what comes to mind? If we were to picture David Lawson in the throes of the midnight disease, what would what would we see? In the throes of the midnight disease. Mine actually is, is a different thing, um, which is when I'm about to go on stage, uh, either for one of my one-man shows or doing a set somewhere or hosting or something, if I'm about to perform a story that happened in solitude late at night, which often they do, I try to think of that before I get on stage in front of however many people I'm lucky enough to be looking into the eyes of performing for, trying to capture that moment of solitude to have this public solitude moment. 
That is fascinating. So, so let me make sure I understand. You kind of, let's say you're telling a story uh, about something that happened when you were alone in your apartment. You try to, in a, almost like a sense memory way, place yourself back in that moment? Yes, in, so, in a lot of ways. Um, I, you know, if I am having... If I'm performing a story about something that happened with just one other person, I try to think, oh, just think about the walking away from that interaction and what you thought of it. And what I wasn't thinking was, how am I going to do this on stage? But now I'm about to do this on stage. Or if I am performing about something that uh, I would read about a lot right before bed, just think of that moment of solitude and the button it was pushing right before bed. And can I push all the buttons of the people out here? Or, um, I mean... Just last night, uh, at my monthly show, I was performing something that I had really much thought about in solitude uh-huh. that I was like, let me see how interesting this is to other people. Um, so a lot of the times I will be thinking of that of that moment of, of living the thing and, hey, that that was really wild to live through. And, and now I, I, it's going to be a whole other thing for all these other people. It's no longer a solitary. Uh, and often late at night is what I think of, um, especially midnight right there yes, in the yes. title. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, just a lot of times right before I get performing, I think of like, well, now now, th- now this is the type of, this is the moment where you make it a public thing. It is no longer the solitary thing. And is the idea behind that impulse that you want to remain in touch with the root of the experience and not let it get too performative. Hmm. That's the assumption I made hearing you talk about it. Something like that. And also knowing, uh, I guess kind of going back to the student thing you mentioned is that a lot of times that's my favorite thing when I'm sitting out there in the audience, I feel like, Uh wow, I feel like I'm watching this person really own this moment from their life right now. Uh, That happened to them. They're making it into this wonderful piece of comedy or this really touching piece of storytelling. And I am now uh, a part of the public moment that they had. I am watching them own that moment. And, and here I go attempting to own it in a similar way is is really the way I'd think of it. Yeah. And that's okay. that's very often what I'm what I'm thinking right before I'm I'm going out there, especially if I'm performing a story that happened in solitude or was a small thing. Yeah. yeah. I love this answer so much because for me, what you're identifying is the exact alchemy of the medium of public storytelling. Personal storytelling performed on a stage. Because when done well, this is exactly what it is, right? A moment that when it took place was for no one else's benefit. You have now, through your artistry, transformed it into a narrative that you are performing publicly because you think it might have some benefit for other people to hear. And what I hear you saying is you kind of take a second to commune with that, the the responsibility of that, the um, what some might call the, the sacredness of that. Um, and it now makes me like, step back in my mind to experiences of watching you perform and seeing if I can detect traces of that moment of pause, moment of communion in your performance. Um, And it makes me think of something that I heard you say in an interview once. Um, And that once once you said it, I was like, yes, David does do that. And I hadn't noticed it, which is that uh, you were being interviewed on a different podcast. And somebody said that they... They love the way that you always make direct eye contact with the audience when you perform. And as soon as they said that, I 
I had this experience of thinking like, that is why David's shows always feel so warm to me is because it feels like he's always speaking directly to me. Um, tell me about that. I don't know whether to call it a technique or impulse, um, but it, it does seem to me to be consistent in your performances. And how did you come to doing that? Well, thank you very much for, for saying that's why they feel warm, but that is something by design I always try to do. And, you know, I'm kind of going back to what I like seeing out there in the crowd mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. trying to bring that to on stage because I love being at a show where I could be at like uh, like the Minetta Lane Theater with like 200 other people, uh, just to give an example of one space and one venue size. <laughs> and I'm like, my goodness, did they do one-fifth of the show to me? One-fourth of the show to me? Yeah. And I really enjoy feeling that. Um and it's not true. It's just that they're kind of working, you know, uh, house left, house right, house center, watch a couple faces. Ooh, that person really seems to be getting it. That person's bored. That's all right. Next person. Um, you know, wow, that person. Ooh, I didn't think it was that serious, I guess. Ooh, buddy. <laughs> or, or, you know, s stuff like that. And um, I love feeling that way in the audience. And I try to do that just to, just to check in, in in a way and just to, to kind of wash over the whole sea of faces, uh, as many as I'm lucky to be in front of at mm -hmm. any given time. Um, but yeah, that is a purposeful technique and it is about connection. And it also is just about, uh, when I'm out there, that's what I like. And, and I'm up here right now, you know, mm -hmm. what a great thing to be up there on stage and just trying to do exactly that. Trying to, yeah. Give everyone a, a look, check in with everyone, play that to everyone. Yeah. Does it ever change your performance like in the moment as you're standing on stage looking out into the audience if you see somebody who looks like to go with the example you just gave they're experiencing the story is more serious maybe than you realized it was does it do you in the moment make an adjustment like maybe i need to lighten this up a little bit or maybe i should lean into the seriousness of this moment that i didn't realize was there sometimes my thing a lot of the time is rehearsing to the point where I won't <laughs> get thrown by a certain something. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've done these shows before about, uh, uh, you know, phone banking voters during lockdown or like I, the, one of the early shows I did was about like how technology has progressed as seen through pornography and sex work. And I would sometimes like with that show, I would be in a case where someone was like, I don't know about that, you know, uh -huh. and uh, I would have to kind of run through like, hey, there's someone who's like not on board with the thing I'm saying in some way, politically, philosophically, or uh, maybe a conclusion I'm drawing out of my life. And they're like, eh, not so sure about that. And the first thing that comes to mind, you asking that is just rehearsing enough to plow through the reaction I'm not necessarily wanting to get. But the flip side is sometimes that if I think there is a joke for the taking in particular to try to, you know, find that joke, uh, reacting to something I'm seeing out there. Like a joke based on the way somebody's reacting. Yes. But the other thing I also should say, which is uh, a bit of a pet peeve of mine, both on stage and off, is it, it can't be as, as simple as like, hey, why are you scratching your face like that? Right. Uh, I uh, because that is, as an audience member, I that's usually when I'm like, oh, no, 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 this is not as interesting of a moment. Like, hey, so they're scratching their face. So someone dropped their drink. Just keep going, you know? Right, right. So uh, it's a, the very fine line. Usually I don't. I would say to put more numbers on it, uh, I would say like 90% of the time I'm not adjusting based on what I'm seeing. Okay, yeah. okay. So not again, not to fixate on this so much, but it, 
that is also a fascinating answer to me because that makes me feel like the connection that you gain through eye contact is not so much about making a bond with an audience member that is going to influence the performance, but rather a technique of some kind. This is going to sound cynical. I don't mean it cynically. Oh, all good. But like a technique of some kind designed to uh, create a sense of intimacy with the viewer, even though... Like to make them feel almost like their attention on you is affecting your performance, even though you have rehearsed so much, you're not actually going to allow that to happen. Yeah, I I think that's a fair uh, fair take to have from that. I would say the eye contact ultimately comes down to uh, you know I hope you can meet me halfway on this. I I hope you yeah. you you can say and you know to throw a line at you. So so I teach storytelling. I've been really lucky the last five years to to get these gigs teaching. And uh, I start every class by saying that uh, one person alone on stage talking to a crowd, it's my favorite thing to create and my favorite thing to see because it creates my two favorite thoughts, which are uh, something like that happened to me once and I never thought of it that way before. Yeah. And the eye contact is me really trying to, you know, get to those two things with someone. Yeah. It's an offer. It's kind of an offer you're making by making eye contact. You're saying like, I'm going to put this thing in front of you. And I, I want to invite you, maybe it's an offer and an invitation, I want to invite you to have your own connection with it by looking into my eyes as I am looking into and yours. And I mean, I'll even do one more on the cynical, which is, you know, at some of these spaces, you have that just talking to the light, can't see anyone's faces. And I'll tell you, Sam, I'm still looking around the light. I'm yeah. still, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I know where folks are sitting, you know, during sound check, I always try to, you know, see where everyone's going to be. And I, I still do the same thing, which probably leads to me like staring at nobody potentially out there. But <laughs> No, I'm so glad you brought this up. And this is like, we're getting very wonky about performance here, but who cares? I do the same thing. If I am performing a story, I actually kind of love it the most when there is bright light against a, a, a sea of a blacked out room, because then you can look into the light and it always feels, I don't know if it has this effect in the room, but you can give the audience the sense that you're looking directly at them. But your experience is that you're actually not seeing anybody. You're just seeing like kind of a sea of white glimmers. And so you kind of feel like you're looking into one giant eye and can glean whatever intimacy comes with that feeling. But you don't actually have to have the horror of making eye contact with somebody who might be folding their arms and being like, no, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Oh, the folded arms. Uh, I, I try not to do it because I know it. To know it. Sometimes I'm out there and I'm like, that's just how I'm going to be yeah. comfortable today yeah. or it's cold or something. But it's really also interesting you should mention that. To go back to the teaching, I've, I've been lucky to been teaching at Jamaica Center for Arts and Learning in Jamaica, Queens. And I'm teaching in their, their second space, their black box space, really nice light setup. And the very first class with uh, these students all of whom are very new to this, new to new to writing and performing and, and new to, you know, on stage live personal storytelling. And I had the lights up at show level and they all didn't like that. They wanted them down. They wanted to see me and their fellow students. And I was fascinated by this huh. because it's 
almost the exact opposite of what you're talking about. And honestly, I can understand wanting that big eye, as you mm-hmm. just said, mm-hmm. or wanting to just be like, I'm, I'm, it's so bright up here. Yeah. yeah. So when you're performing, you're in the moment of telling a story. Do you consciously think to yourself, like, I'm in this room, I'm at the Mineta Theater, I'm talking to the 200 people in these seats tonight telling this story? Or do you kind of have a way that you're going to do the story regardless of the room you're in, regardless of how many people there are? Because I've heard people say, like, no matter where I am, what story I'm telling, I'm talking to my dad. Um, Hmm. No matter where I am, no matter what story I'm telling, I'm going to hit the beats in the same order. Like, I'm going to do it that way. I guess it's really two questions. How scripted are you in the way that you tell the story based on the environment that you're in? And how much do you let yourself be aware of your surroundings in the performance? I really came from theater and mm-hmm. still I'm in theater. I love theater and came from the the world of like there, you know, it's it's written on the page and then you you rehearse it that way. And that's the way I rehearse for a, a set or one man show night, any of that. But gotta gotta meet people where they are. You know, I think I once heard the thing you gotta um like break it down to build it up. And mine's yeah. almost the, the the opposite, you know, trying trying to like build this up through rehearsal. So in the moment you could you can find you know different tags or, or different ways it's going or um, yeah so uh, probably lean more towards traditional rehearsal stuff but uh-huh. leaving open room for for that spontaneity or however it flows out of you in that moment yeah so I'm really glad you uh, gave me insight into this part of your process because it it makes me think of another question I want I have some as you have noticed like some just general presentation questions for you and and the next one that occurred to me as i was thinking back on the performances of yours that i've been present for videos of yours that i've watched um you almost never use the word like as you're performing you don't ever say so like this one time um i'm talking to this guy and he's like six feet tall and I'm not even saying saying like is a bad thing. It's just a click in conversational speech that many, many people have. You almost never use that word. How much of that is intentional? And I'm tempted to believe, based on what you've just said, that that is a result of the fact that you have a script that you have res- rehearsed so many times that the words are able to spill out of you in a seemingly natural way, despite the fact that they are scripted. That is very intentional for me. Okay. Um, as I go, um, and, <laughs> <laughs> you can say it as much as you want. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and you know, it, it's an interesting thing just because I do try to avoid my personal pet peeves, mm-hmm. which are, um, let's take beginning a story with so, which has been discussed a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't like doing that personally for me. It's not my favorite thing if I have paid a, for a ticket at a show. Mm-hmm. I really love having words flow on stage in that way. And mm-hmm. and uh, I can even wonder, you know, if someone's like, oh, you know, is that taking away your spontaneity? That would be a fair point. Uh, I, I, I would think, you, you know, uh, a thoughtful critic uh, could probably have a very good point about that. But I do try to try not to do 
um, filler words, try not to have. I, I just love to the point stuff so much when I'm sitting there and it just feels better and cleaner for me on stage. But what is the pet peeve for you? Like, what does it make you feel? Because you mentioned like paying for a ticket. I'm, I'm interested in that. Is it that you want to feel like someone has prepared a, a real complete thought for you? I really just love the person knows what they want to say and they're going for it. And there's, there's not a ton of uh, like chuffa in the way, which is the old showbiz term for what extras <laughs> would say in the background. And I don't know how old that is, but chuffa, like nonsense, like it just really that you, that you're getting to the point and you're not wasting too much time and all this stuff, or these are all things that I love a lot in art and that feel the best for me uh-huh. uh, having like this real, like get into it. Like I've worked really hard on this and I really have put a lot of thought and intention uh-huh. into uh-huh. it and not having stuff like like are so but as an audience member i really do like it when someone has a has a flowing thing and that they've worked really hard on it because you know someone asking how much time they have left for example when i'm at a show if they're a couple minutes in and they ask the host off stage how many more minutes do i have i'm like oh no like you know and i I, it seems like you understand what i'm saying just because i'm like oh i really was hoping that you would have had the care for our attention to yeah. work on the message you're saying. Yeah. So, I'm also yeah. feeling mortified because I literally last night came to your open mic yeah. and had a story that was not fully prepared and ran out of time right in the middle of it. <laughs> and, and Sam, I have to tell you, first of all, um, that's what the mic is for. I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I think of myself as, as like... Uh, like running a gym, that a story, a bookshop storytelling show. I, I want people to work out. I'm not going around being like, is that a deadlift? What is that? You know, <laughs> it's a, it, I want people to work things out. I yeah. love sitting in the front row and seeing people work through things. I, I, I love it. It's one of my favorite parts of this, this life I've been blessed to do in storytelling. Um, but, uh, you shouldn't feel self-conscious also because you had a great adjustment that you got the light and then you actually were like, oh, how am I ever going to finish this? And then you had a really good ending to your story <laughs> last night, Sam. And I, you you got out of that with that limitation really well, I thought. Uh, well, thank you. Thank yeah. you. I just, uh, I, I don't mean to come across like fishing. I just, um, what I'm really trying to do is agree with you, honestly, because I similarly feel like I went to the moth last week and had the experience of watching some of the performers go up there and do exactly what you just said, which is to treat the five to six minutes that they had on the stage in front of us like it was just purely their time to sort some ideas out in their head. And the moth is a weird example to use here because we think of the moth as like this very elevated form of storytelling, but it's actually just an open mic. So like, of course, not not that there's anything wrong with open mics, but like, of course, not everybody that gets up there is going to have a fully crafted piece. But there was this way in which people would get up there and... They weren't really telling a story. They weren't really looking to express something profound about themselves. They weren't actually being vulnerable. They were just kind of digging being in front of a crowd with a mic. And the idea that you have paid money to go and watch that happen feels... It just doesn't feel good. It's uncomfortable for for everybody. Um, But to bring it back to you, it's also interesting to me that we're talking about this because... Another thing that I appreciate about your particular style of performance is more than almost any other storyteller I've ever watched, your patter as a performer 
it has the rhythm oftentimes of stand-up comedy. You have a lilt in your voice, a kind of ebb and flow in your interaction with the audience, your interaction with yourself that is reminiscent of a stand-up who oftentimes is not very well prepared, is just kind of surfing the energy of the room and maybe has an idea of where they want a joke to go, but is going to abandon it instantly if there's the promise of a laugh down another avenue that they haven't planned. But you're not doing that. You are very scripted. You have very carefully prepared what you're going to say. And so it's very captivating to watch because you have brought together two very divergent ideals. One being, I'm just a comic. We're just here to get a goof like, hey, who's uh, what? what's happening? What's happening? Let's talk about what's happening in this exact moment. Yeah. That sort of energy. But you are also in control. Like you're only going to say what you came there to say. How much in me noticing that, is that something you do consciously? And if it is, where did that come from? Like who, who where do you feel like you got that sensibility from? Hmm. That is something I try to do. First thing I can think of is just trying to bring uh, a sense of fun to the whole thing, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. a sense of theatricality, a sense of, and, and trying not to have it be too BSE, but it's going to be BSE. It's theatrical. I'm yeah. a theater guy. Um, you know, the first thing I can think of that's coming to mind is I remember being a kid and I didn't, I was too young for Johnny Carson. He was gone by the time uh, I would care about comedy at all, but I read about him specifically writing clunkers in his opening monologue to then have the comeback that he had prepared, the thing to dig him out of the hole that was stronger than the first punchline. I read this in some like book I got out of the library about comedy. And I was like, that's amazing. You can do that. That's so cool. You can have a scripted thing. Um, really just trying to bring that uh, that kind of energy and, and sense of fun. And mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. especially when hosting, I, I, I love sitting, you know, just because you were at my show last night. And thank you again for coming, Sam, to oh, the Story pleasure. Bookshop. My pleasure. Um, but I love being there up front. And I love doing those tags in between people's stories. Just a couple of words, yes. a little something. A moment I really loved last night is above the bookstore, uh, there's an apartment with a dog in it. Uh -huh. And just during some of the quieter stories, I just heard the dog kind of marching around. And someone went up there and told a dog story, and the dog was staying in place <laughs> as if like I had to go on stage and be like, did anyone else notice the dog in the apartment upstairs? I was like, hold, shh, 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 I got to hear this. Yeah. What's this guy talking about down there? Like, and I just knew that was a spontaneous thing. And I happened to notice that the dog had stopped. The dog started immediately after that guy got off stage. Yeah. And I was like, this is a thing in the moment. I have to have this said. So I think it comes from this, um, you know, a planned, uh, planned authenticity, I guess. Uh -huh, <laughs> I don't know what uh -huh. it is. But just, I, I, I think I answered the question with just trying to bring that. And in and, 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 and a more cultural thing, just that. I do love storytelling as this catch-all for like the literary world and the comedy world and mm -hmm. the theater world mm -hmm. and all these worlds kind of blend together in storytelling. I love seeing people at shows who come from these different backgrounds and trying to bring that blend in there a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and uh, what you're saying about, what you're identifying about hosting is so apt, I think, because you think about somebody like Johnny Carson or David Letterman, I think was exceptional at this. There's a lie 
inherent in it, right? Where they're like, I'm not the funny guy. You're the funny guy. Like they have a guest come on and it's like, ah, look at this wonderful person. You know, ah, it's so good to have you here. Like I tried a joke in my monologue. Didn't go so well. Whoops. But we all know everybody's there because they would kill to be on Letterman. Everybody's there because they would kill to be on Carson. Carson's the talent. Letterman's the talent. You know what I mean? That that person is the one who creates the space. So I feel like what you're identifying is the doubleness of that role, which to me speaks to doubleness is something that I, I think we've been talking about a lot in our conversation so far, right? Is this idea that you are making eye contact, but not necessarily getting lost in this individual connection with somebody. You are speaking with the pattern style of a stand-up, but actually performing something that's very crafted. Who would you say helped you formulate these early ideas about what constitutes a really captivating performance? Who do you remember identifying early on as doing this blend of things that made you want to do it yourself? There's so many people. Like the first, it's not really anything like what I do, but I was a freshman at Emerson College and I was taking this class called Languages for the Stage. And all my favorite classes in college were anything about drama lit, where we had to read plays. Uh, this is always my favorite. I still read plays today. I read one yesterday, you know. Um, and we got assigned Fires in the Mirror by Anna DeVere Smith. Oof. And I got to be honest, like I had gone to open mics growing up. I had auditioned for Comedy Sports DC. I had been to the DC Improv. I had seen comedy on TV. I had read books about comedy. I thought the one person alone on stage, you're doing setup, punchline, callback, crowd work, all the things that are into stand-up comedy. Now, I seriously did not know that you could do something else alone mm -hmm. on stage. Mm -hmm. Did not know that. I don't. I do like documentary theater like Anna DeVere Smith did with Fires in the Mirror. And, and say a little bit before you go further, yeah. just in case people don't know, talk a little bit about what Fires in the Mirror is. So Fires in the Mirror is Anna DeVere Smith uh, in uh, the early 90s, I think it was 1991, in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, not all too far from where we're talking right now. There was um, some, you know, there was an awful incident uh, with uh, the black and Jewish community in Brooklyn. Now, Anna DeVere Smith went there and interviewed people in both of those communities and performed, based on her verbatim interviews, these people who she had talked to, yeah. um, which is also how I learned like that. I, I always correct myself a conversation because um, uh, just walking home from my show last night, I was saying to someone like, oh, that subject in their story, uh, person, um, character. But that's like where I learned <laughs> that like subject is kind of that memoir term yeah. more than just saying character because character you know, doesn't mm -hmm. really exist all the time. Right. Um, but that's what uh, Fires in the Mirror um, was. So that was the first time I, I realized Okay. That, that that could be, but that's also nothing like what I do. But that was really a massive moment for me. Being 18 years old in that class, reading that in my dorm, being like, "Is she alone on stage for all of this?" I thought, but there's no setups, there's no punchlines, there's no nothing. So let me understand, because this is incredible to me. You had this revelation just from the script. Yes, yeah. And then we watched some clips from the PBS special of yes. it. Yeah. And then I saw her alone on stage. Yeah. But if I'm hearing you right, 
seeing it was sort of a confirmation of a marvel that you had had just from reading it, which was, hold on, she's going to play all these people herself? Yeah. What was captivating to you about that? I honestly didn't even know how it would be executed, which Mm -hmm. describes a lot of how I would read theater when Mm -hmm. I was younger. I actually think in my 15 years in New York, I've been uh, really lucky to get, sometimes I'll be sitting there in a theater and think, oh, this is like one of those things I would have read and been like, how, how do they do this? And now I'm, I'm here and this uh-huh. is how they do it. Uh-huh. You know, cause like scripts are like recipes and, uh, right. <laughs> and then you got to cook the thing in, in front of people. Um, can I actually uh, go back to something else I wanted yes, to say? Yes, yes, yes. Just because, uh, you had mentioned like uh, the the thing about me trying to have the air of stand up comedy. Yeah, and I think the thing that uh, I relate to, and with a little wisdom at thirty seven now, I see that many people think this is that 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 air also comes from wanting it to be fun, wanting to be kind of a fun comedy show, but also wanting to uh, you know talk about trauma, talk about uh, yeah. politics, talk about stuff like that. And I think a lot of that comes from this is a bit of a, a, a left turn from what you. You were asking me, but from knowing that so many artists think, oh, I'm not funny enough for this and I'm not serious enough for that. Uh I'm too mainstream for this and I'm too weird for that. I didn't get that job because I'm too much of a clown and I didn't get that job because I'm too mothy literary person. Uh Uh So that's something I think was on the tip of my brain that I really wanted to get out there to you, Sam, Uh because... I, the more conversations I have with artists, I mean, do you, can you relate to any of that at all? Moments in your life where you've been to this or to that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that's extremely resonant. I'm, but tell me what it is about, it, it, you're saying that you want to find a genre of performance that is unconcerned with those definitions. Yeah, trying to get the best of what I love about all of them. Yes, Um, and doesn't have to be recognizable as any one thing. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Because why I do love storytelling shows and one-person shows better than going out to see a night of a couple of stand-ups is I love knowing that there will be that concrete arc in there, yeah. that theme in there. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I read on the I read what the show's going to be about for the next 60 to 90 minutes. I know where we're going, but there's going to be surprises within where we're going. Uh, it, it, as opposed to, uh, well, there's five comics on the bill. I hope I like all five of them. And it'll kind of be like jumping topics and jumping point of views all Mm -hmm. over the place, which is all fine. I love stand-up comedy, but it is harder for me to to get out and do it. And I also am uh, uh, not good at writing stand-up comedy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't have that like amazing, uh, you know, uh, that joke's not working. Go to that premise. Go to that one. Go to that one. You know, it is incredible to watch, but it's not me. Yeah. 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 No, I I absolutely get that. I absolutely get that. and I think it was even I agree with you about this. I would much rather go to a bad storytelling show, a bad night of storytellers than a bad night of comedy because what I want to see if I come out to a show to the point you were making earlier is I want to see people really trying to do something. That's what I want to see. And it's much more likely at a storytelling show that you will see somebody reach for something that is interesting. They might not get it. They, they might not be able to reach far enough yet, but they're going to try to access something very deep within themselves that might connect with something very deep within you. 
Whereas at a bad night of comedy, you're going to see, you know, seven white guys make variations on the same Trump joke. Yeah. Um, and some of those Trump jokes might be funny, but they're all basically in the same bucket. And I think this was actually illustrated very nicely at your show last night where there was the woman who went up, I think she was first, and I can't remember what she said. I don't think she had ever really performed storytelling before. She had a script in her hands. She spoke very quietly. It was very hard to understand what she was saying. And it was this very tender reflection on her father. Yeah. And how she had not noticed all this effort her father was making at the time and noticed it too late. And was it the best performance I've ever seen? No. Did it make me think about things about my own dad that I haven't been good about noticing? Yes. And your show is free. You know what I mean? Like the show's free and it's, it, she was only up there for five minutes and I got to have that experience. Like, and that's not even the most trained, like I could go to a night of really good comedy and not have any thought approaching that level of significance. So I, you know, just to mention that, cause man, on the, on the way home, my girlfriend Paige and I were walking home. We're always talking about the show and, um, I had had a really great conversation with uh, someone who actually just saw me online and they're starting an open mic way out west. And I noticed that their show had a no notes policy. Mm. And I understand that. Again, as an audience member, I want to see your eyes. I want to see, you know, look at us. And we had just had the conversation about looking at everyone and, you know, you're looking down at the notes. But I'll tell you, if I had a no notes policy, we would have missed out on that woman last night because mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. yeah, it wasn't the most polished thing, but I was hanging on every sentence she was saying. Mm -hmm. I was rooting for her. Um, and I also think some people need the notes if you're working on something and I want you to come and work on it. Yeah. So, so that kind of goes hand in hand with what you were saying before a little bit, you know, that, yeah. that, yeah, you know, gatekeeping's bad. You yes. Know? yes. <laughs> like gatekeeping bad. Unequivocal. Yes. Yeah. If, if you take one thing away from this conversation. Yeah. Um, but let's go back to fires in the mirror because you have this moment where you read the script and you realize there is the potential for one person on stage to be something else. Um, and that comes from this experience of reading and then seeing Anna Devere Smith. Tell me about high school David, teenage David and younger, who's in DC auditioning for comedy sports, wanting to do comedy. Who are the comedians that are making you want to do that? Oof. You know, the thing that really stinks, the first that comes to mind, and it's the whole bag of stew, is that I had the CD of Dave Chappelle's Killing Him Softly. Uh, right? That's so like... I, I mean, Killing Him Softly is an all-timer. Yeah. It's it an all-timer. And, and, uh, and we don't need to get into all of it. You know, you're... Should you have heroes? No. The point of view yeah. to change, blah, blah, blah. We've... The, Controversy like, acknowledged. Even the because part of me was like, try to think of someone else. And then I'm just like, oh, I used to listen to the Woody Allen stand up. I'm like, to pick David, pick no. somebody. Yeah. Like, like, and the, I mean, I used to listen to the Adam Sandler albums all the time. And, you know, Adam Sandler, you know, I think that's like of the trio, but that's, I don't have as, as much. I will say one thing though, if, if we are spitballing that, because I'm, I'm trying to give you these, these good answers to these questions is that, um, so I grew up Jewish in mm -hmm. Annandale, Virginia, outside D.C., like you mentioned. And um, Hanukkah song was was one of the biggest pizza pieces of media for me in terms of that it was like, oh, wow, like I have friends who like all packed the Friday night theater for the water boy 
But they don't get half the jokes in this song because it's for me and my yeah. family and yeah. my mom thinks it's funny. And, you know, yeah. all this stuff in this kind of like microcast comedy yeah. that came out of the Hanukkah song for me to, to, to give one example of that. Um, but it's not like I wanted to be like Dave Chappelle or, or, or well, I mean, Woody Allen, definitely. I, I love the fact that, you know, he made a new one every year and, yeah. um, and he experimented with genres. And, you know, um, I watched the whole miniseries about how horrible of a father and person he of is. Of course. Like, like, I just feel the need to just mention that just because, you I, know. I appreciate that. But, yeah. can, but can I say something I've been thinking about recently? Just because I'm actually really interested in what you connected with about both Woody Allen and Dave Chappelle. Um and I think it's, I think it's important, you know, all of us are going to at some point find out things about people that we love that are anywhere from unsavory to evil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, I think we can be responsible about the attention we pay to new work that those people do after the point where these terrible things happened without indicting our younger selves for loving these things because we didn't know yeah. at the time. Um, I think we can hold both things. So like, I would actually, I would love to know what what you loved about Killing Them Softly because I, I mean, I'll join you there and say like, that that is one of the most like roundhouse kick to the face hour, hour and a halves of comedy that has ever been committed to tape. Like it is astonishingly good. I want to hear what you love about it. Yeah, but. I, like the first word that comes to mind, which is one of the most overused words for me when I'm coming out of a show I love is calling comedy inventive. Mm. Like the whole scene that you laid out. Uh, I mean, I still know all the, you know, uh, I, I didn't know I couldn't do that. Like uh, mm -hmm. a white guy saying that to a cop and the cop goes away uh -huh. and then he turns to Dave and says, because I did know I could do that. <laughs> or, you know, and the social commentary on the on the police being like, let's sprinkle some crack on him and get mm -hmm. out of here. And that he uses that callback several times in mm -hmm. very, again, inventive mm -hmm. ways. And um, uh, all of these incredibly specific scenes, specific, you know, his white guy voice in there was, Ugh, was yeah. so great. And, and, um, and even just like this, you, you know, it's in DC, it's at the Lincoln theater. I, I can't pass that building without thinking of that special uh -huh. actually, um, uh, on U street. And, and with some some regional acknowledgement, and and he went to Duke Ellington High School, yeah. you know, the the performing arts magnet school. So there's all this stuff, but inventiveness is the thing I think of the most. Yes, and I'm glad you brought up the locality of it too, because like there is actually something extremely profound about having that experience. This comedy volcano that everyone I know loves, that like the whole world loves, it happened here. It happened in the same place I'm from. It it give it's there is some small way in which it makes you think. I'll say my own experience. I don't want to name yours, but like there's some small way in which that makes you go like, if he could do that and be from here, maybe I could do that. Like maybe the things I'm noticing about my life around here could be worthy of being on a stage. Yeah, and, I, and just one thing about that, since we're both from around that area, I I do think like there's so many funny people that came from uh, D.C., Maryland, Virginia. Uh, the DMV. Um, there are so many people who record their comedy specials at like Dark Constitution Hall, the Lincoln Theater, mm -hmm, the Kennedy mm -hmm, Center, mm -hmm. like all these D DC Improv, there have been some specials there. And I really just think there's something about the seriousness of that place that leads to 
like if you're weird and funny, you're really weird and funny because mm-hmm. you're just in this like flying drones appropriation budget <laughs> trying to whip up votes, lobbyist, FBI, like yeah, all yeah. DEA, I don't know, like whatever, yep. you know, DOI, all the DO whatevers. Like it's so serious that yep. like I, I, I think a lot of people just want to you – know, I agree, and yeah. and I will add to that all of those things, and also I just have this feeling of like every adult man that I knew growing up there wore a crisp blue button down, <laughs> tucked into khaki pants <laughs> with New Balance sneakers, and they had their hair combed in a perfect side part. Like that was what grown up was, and I knew from an early age, like not happening for me, you yeah. know. So like, what else is out there? <laughs> And so I don't know. I think I think that's another reason that it DC is a place uh, defined by conformity. Yeah, and yeah, it's a it's a weird place. I I definitely am in the. uh, I I promised myself we wouldn't talk too much about sports, but uh, when Kevin Durant said he didn't want to play for the Wizards because he loved growing up there, but didn't want to live there again, I really related with Kevin Durant. Hard to argue with that one. Yeah. Plenty more to come with David Lawson on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to WALT. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I've heard you tell a story about growing up Jewish, as you said, but being a conservative Jew, right? Yep. Um, But going to summer camp in an extremely orthodox environment, and in the story, at least, that I, I watched you tell about this, you were having a great deal of fun about with the idea that, like the example that's coming to mind is you talk about you're 12 years old, you and your friends are talking about the movie, The Lost World, the Jurassic Park movie, The Lost World. And this counselor comes over and is like, you, you can't actually talk about The Lost World because 
what what do you say? Dinosaurs are atheist propaganda? Something like that. That might have been me, but he did he did say that the world is fifty seven hundred years old and okay. and if if scientists are saying something are millions of years old, they're just trying to disprove Hashem, God. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. So a person said that to you yeah, yeah. and expected you to like not be like, come on. <laughs> you know? Like so and I think a lot of times when people find out that someone who's interested in comedy is Jewish, um, like this has happened to me. I'm half Jewish and people are like, oh, well, of course you like comedy or you're Jewish. And I'm always like, what's that about? Like, what that's is, a weird yeah, thing to that say. That is quite strange, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, thank you, but also, huh, okay, yeah. 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 Um, like, uh, yeah. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. So what I'm interested in knowing from you is like, what was exciting to you about, say, that moment where you are presented in a Jewish context? You grow up with this idea that, like, I am Jewish. Like, Jewish is part of who I am. Here is a representative of my notional faith saying this thing that I recognize as absurd. And I'm going to give myself permission to, like, not believe it. When did you, like, start to detect that impulse in yourself? Uh, the not believing all of it or the comedy part of it? The comedy part. Ah, hmm. You know, the, the, the first thing I, I can think of is, um, for a performance perspective, not necessarily an audience one, is that, uh, I had this sixth grade teacher, uh, Mr. Heflin, Brett Heflin, I'll say his full name, (laughs) um, (laughs) Who I was a really misbehaved kid. I, I got suspended from school a couple times, uh, and I wasn't like firecrackers and mailboxes or anything, but I loved cracking jokes. Mm-hmm. And uh, like we were supposed to stay in our seat at lunch hour, like you know, and I would get up and run around, and people would cheer me on. It would be awesome, and then mm-hmm. I would get in a lot of trouble. And you know, I get I miss all less. There's still a lot of about science and math. I think I don't know because I was standing outside in the hallway mm-hmm. because I was. Uh, making jokes. Mm -hmm. And uh, this guy, Mr. Heflin, let me do a morning sports report every morning for two minutes. And that was my outlet as if I behaved the rest of class, I could do that and brilliant educator. He just gave two minutes to me. And that's kind of when I learned that it had a certain centering, calming effect on me through that, Mm. uh, that I didn't need to be such this impulsive, uh, really acting out person but that that and and it was it, really the the two tied together because uh, like Adam Sandler I heard this great story that I think his high school principal said uh, I was hoping he would grow up instead he grew rich as in that you know he's a juvenile comedian <laughs> yeah. in a lot of ways and he always has this appeal for kids it's actually been kind of moving to see his appeal towards children continue yeah, like throughout yeah. like these like netflix movies now mm-hmm. and the hotel transylvania all this stuff i haven't seen because it's not for me <laughs> but kids love it yeah um and just this kind of like you may be misbehaving you may be told to hey stop squirming around stay still keep it down all these things i hated sam hearing all those but in right. comedy like squirm squirm all you want right be as loud as you want mm-hmm. move around you know all you want um, so I think that that was the thing that, that connected Re- really, you know, getting suspended from school and, and, and finding this thing that, that centered me. Ooh, there's this thing that can be just those things you're being told not to do. Yeah. I'm tempted to make a connection there too, that that's a very early lesson in, if you're going to perform, you have to have a plan. You yeah. have two minutes 
So you have to, I assume, write a script and you have to focus and like put your attention into the appropriate container for this thing. And then you have to get off the stage. Like you have to use our time well. I think I had a bit because AC Green in the NBA was coming up on the consecutive games played streak. Uh And I think I actually, maybe I'm inventing this in retrospect because I would mention it every day how many more games he had and this joke about the thing that could go wrong that Uh messes this up for him. (laughs) And I'm like, hey, good job, 12-year-old David. That one's one's okay. (laughs) Like, you know, but but that's what I think of. Really Mm -hmm. just being a really misbehaving kid, a very hyperactive kid and and finding the, the center in you know this whole world that uh, you know all these Paul Rubens tributes uh, mm-hmm. that that came out recently when he died. I I, re- I loved him and I related to him. And I think a lot of kids had that same mm-hmm. thing. You know, mm-hmm. that beautiful tributes about being yourself and you know acting yeah. out all that stuff like that. Yeah. So this once makes me want to ask about two things that you know you can talk about as much or as a little bit as you want. Um, one is you did a solo show a few years ago called Insomnia in Space. And you um, talked about in that show uh, having insomnia since you were a little kid. When did that start? And how much do you attribute this squirminess, this desire to like act out to not getting enough sleep? Like, Yeah. You know, that really started in high school. Uh, okay. You know, okay. I, fe- I feel like. Having kids get to school at 7 a.m. is still so wild to me. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, it was scary just because I didn't want to go to bed. I couldn't go to sleep. Like Adult Swim uh, was huge for me mm-hmm. just because like those, like the screens, like the text on the screen, yeah. I feel like, that, oh, you were there for me, you know? Yeah. But it really started and it continued in college. And really, I, I will, this is not just me going for the aw, but I've been dating my girlfriend Paige for almost 12 years now and that really brought the end to it. Both... Both her, you know, our home life bringing an end to it. And also, I, I really feel like I needed to figure that out. Some people don't. Some people just yeah. remain being either chronic or transient insomniacs. I think those are the two diagnoses that I know of back when I really would read about this and study and talk to doctors about this. Definitely came from squirminess. Having to be at high school at 7 a.m., was tough mm-hmm. in college. Uh, just I would just be up sometimes with the luxury then. Oh, my first class wasn't until noon. Yeah. Ooh, maybe. And I wrote this show about like being up and just watching the shades of blue in the sky and um, hearing the birds sing before the cars started. Like all these things. Uh, going to college in Boston and then here in in Queens when I still really was an insomniac. Um, and I just knew, and with midnight disease, this was going to come up, by the way, Sam. I, you know, I, like on the way here, I was like, I wonder if we're going to talk about that show that I did. going to ask that, about the fucking insomnia. Yeah, thing. yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it was, um, I used to want, uh, to be awake all the time, actually. I, I actually think of this, and I'm a little sad for younger me. I, I used to think, my my ideal superpower used to be no sleep. Which, yeah, you say in the show, I hate sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, and I, I have grown past that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that truly was the midnight disease. If I'm hearing you right, it's not that you couldn't fall asleep. It's that you were like, I just don't fucking want to. <laughs> some, some nights it would be, I didn't want to. And some nights it would be like, I got to get up for that thing tomorrow. And just, mm-hmm. I did have college times where I would, and uh, I honestly like shuddered. I'm a little sad for younger me. I would just be in class and be like, no one here knows that I've been awake for 33 hours, 34 hours, mm-hmm. uh, which 
awful, terrible, Com- completely un- completely a twenty year old person. By the right. way, right? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> like you know, because uh, th- oh goodness, uh, doing that now sounds just dangerous. Honestly. Yes, yes. Um, Likely not possible. <laughs> yeah, not possible, and and on you know. Uh, Bad stuff, but um, some of it would be that I just want to stamp. I just wanted to read this thing. I just wanted to keep going down these wormholes, and I still go down wormholes before I go to bed, and usually pretty dark, uh, bad wormholes. That's mm-hmm. still that is still a my midnight disease is 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 reading about January six helps me sleep. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, what did you want to stay awake for? Hmm. I think I just used to see sleep as the little as little deaths, you know, not the, uh-huh. not the good, not the petite more, not <laughs> right, the, right, right. the amazing thing the French are talking about, <laughs> but uh, but um, I just was like, why do I have to I'll, like a real I'll sleep when I'm dead mentality, like a true I just want to yeah. keep going, I just want to, you know, and sometimes I do think that I like. Like I was talking about Bob Dylan with my girlfriend recently. Oh boy, I'm like the gag in the new Barbie movie. Um, about just uh, <laughs> okay. you know, I like you know, about uh, uh, I felt a, a, a very filleted in a great way by that gag in the movie. Oh about yeah, the, you know, the Godfather in the studio system in the '70s. <laughs> hey Paige, have you ever heard of uh, <clears throat> Bob but, Dylan? <laughs> but but she was just like, oh, you know, I would listen to Highway 61 and bring it all back home, and then I hopefully not in a mansplained way, just named. The the other 14 Bob Dylan albums yeah, that I know yeah. pretty well because I would be up at 4 a.m. listening to New Morning or Blood on the Tracks or bring, yeah, you know, yeah. any of these other ones. Um, and I, I'm really thankful for all that that knowledge because I did like one. Well, I just want to just keep it going. Like keep it, keep the stuff going. Music is so good. Movies are so good. Books are so good. I just give me more and like I'm writing this thing and I'll write all night, baby, you yeah, know? Yeah. And it's completely unsustainable. And a lot of it probably came from just being alone and not having anyone else in that bedroom with me. And uh, uh, and just this kind of both a thirst for life and, and they, they, they led to this hatred of sleep and stillness. What were you writing? on these benders where you're like uh a lack of sleep i don't know if we can call that a bender but like um what were, like because you, you mentioned a moment ago you're up you're listening to bob dylan you're checking stuff out you're like going down the rabbit holes but then there's this writing component yeah i would write some early versions of of what i would do including like I, in college i wrote this thing about being up late in space. And it really then in like 2013, 2014, I performed the show at like Dixon Place and a couple yeah. French festivals on the road um, and some other places. But uh, I also um, was this, like this huge Charles Bukowski guy in, uh, yeah. in college. So I would write all this free verse stuff, uh, lots of all this free verse poetry. And I would write short stories and I would write short films. And I would write so much stuff. I was writing in any medium I could. I really was like a like super arty college kid in a way. Yeah. I mean, it's not like all of it. You know, I love my life in the arts now, but you know, I I, I loved writing all of it, and I, I do yeah. think I got something from all of it too. I, yes. I, I I wanted to make the joke like look at me now, ha ha. Like, but I'm like no no no. Actually, I I was really happy. No, there's a tremendous yeah. amount of self discovery that comes from that, and I would like to say something just to join you in this that I don't think gets talked about enough when we think about these periods in our lives. Whether, you know, if somebody listening to this is like, oh, I had that with sleep or drinking or weed or whatever, it feels good. Like, there is something about staying up all night, writing 25 pages of madness that feels good. 
like, and it almost doesn't matter what you wrote to be able to say like, I have, I'm a kid who's always wanted to be a writer or an artist or something. And look, I wrote, I did it. Yeah. I did the thing. And you know, like what's dangerous is when you start to be like, well, I can only write if I stay up all night listening to stuff and, and, and writing in free verse. That's the only way to write. Like that's where it starts to become a problem. But like, there's nothing inherently bad, like what you're describing, like it's not good for your long-term health and stuff like that, but it made you write and you still write. And if that's the route you had to take to get to this version of yourself as a writer, you know, I'm not sure there's harm in that. There's, there's also, you know, in terms of you saying it feels good, I used to be like 700,000 people live in Boston and I'm just like, and how many are awake at 4 a.m. right now on Tuesday morning? It makes you special. And I, I literally, and I would like go on walks and just be like, yeah. it's like especially in a city like, you know, I, I didn't like living in Boston, but when I visit, I, I, I love Boston. I, again, I, I love New York City. I want to live here. Uh, <laughs> and um, But uh, especially being in definitely a city that does sleep, yeah, uh, de- you know, um, you know, because you know, only one New York, I guess. You know, I, I, as I always say, it's the greatest city in the world that is uh, only a couple hours from my family. Um, <laughs> don't want to like knock any other cities, but um, Boston definitely. Like, you know, the subway closes at midnight, and you know, the bars, you know, last call is pretty early. I would be like, wow, I'm like, yeah, I am. We are the something percent. You yes, know, uh, I yeah. beat all of you. Yeah, I something like that. You. And yeah. then you know. And then uh, hour thirty five in class, I'd be like, I don't think uh, I don't feel like a winner right now, actually. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. I just want to say, like, you're what you're describing is exactly the reason that I became a cab driver. Hmm. You yeah. know, I, I mean, not the one reason, but one of the reasons is that when I would talk about wanting to do it, people would be like, "But, but you can't do that. Nobody does that." And correct me. What, did you do that here in New York City? Do you? I have, did. Okay. I did. Yeah. yeah. Um. But there was something about it that's like, I would be driving around in my cab at 4.30 in the morning and I would be like, nobody does this and I'm doing it. Yeah. I'm one of the people who's doing it. And in some ways, that's all it was about was that just to feel that, to feel I'm the only one doing this right now. And that makes me matter. How long did you drive a cab in the city? Seven months. All right. Gotcha. Wow. That's a good, I mean, like- uh, and so the first thing that's coming in my mind is like longer than De Niro did when he was doing the methody <laughs> stuff, you know, for the movie, yeah. you know, I would argue he maybe got a little more out of it than I did. But <laughs> <laughs> Who knows though? Who knows? Who knows? You, got, Who knows? you got the, you got to do it like at a different time too. I feel, I feel like, you know, Oh boy. Uh, his, his, uh, uh, his, uh, hack license is, uh, at the museum of moving image, by the yes. way. I, I love seeing that, yeah. but, uh, I've forgotten about that. I, I feel like I have heard you tell stories about that before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't mean to make this about me being a cab driver. No. I just mean to say, you know, I really resonate with that idea of here I am. I'm in it. Like it's happening. I'm one of the few people who is aware of this experience. Yes. Yeah. Um, that is a very powerful thing to have a connection with as an artist. Um, you know, in a way, I think there's a real connection between that and tell me if I'm reaching here, but your appreciation of Anna Devere Smith and Fires in the Mirror, what she did by going and interviewing the people who were connected with this tragedy is she gave herself a tangible sense of who these people were instead of writing fictional characters i mean obviously they were fictional in some sense because it wasn't them playing themselves but 
she was willing to have the experience. And to me, this is a version of the same thing. It's like, I'm going to have the experience that most people are like, not for me. And there is something about being an artist, especially an artist who works from your own life, where you have to be open at least to the idea of like things that other people might be like, not for me. You have to be like that. It's for me too. I'm, I need to understand that. Um, which actually makes me think of another thing I wanted to ask you about, which is I heard you in an interview once you were talking to Will Carey on his podcast and you guys were talking about sort of types of storytelling and you were talking about the moth and the dump, which was seminal open mic show that I think sadly is not running anymore. Um, but shout out to Jake Hart. And you guys were talking about basically not wanting... Do you remember this conversation? I, I do, yes. I, I Thank you for listening to that podcast. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let, tell me if I'm mischaracterizing what you said because it was you guys talking about it. Um, but I'm curious to know if you still feel this way, basically. What I interpreted you guys to be saying is that a moth style of storytelling was not as appealing to you because it involved like a lesson or a moral rather than just the sharing of a pure experience. Am I analy- Am I clocking that correctly? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. That was a couple of years ago. I think that was like early 2015, I mm-hmm. want to say, mm-hmm. maybe that I did that interview just for my uh, perspective's sake. And there's a timestamp in it, honestly, which is that the the now Washington Commanders were yes. uh, playing the Green Bay Packers. I, I can't. I, I <laughs> swear playoffs. to God, Sam, I've been trying not to talk about sports, but I remembered <laughs> that because yes, because he told me the score at the end and yes, they got yes. destroyed. Because um, <laughs> of course they did. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was my frame of reference for that Sunday that I was in. Uh, and <laughs> then what's in what's like Queens where he lived at the time? Uh, good old Will. Um, you know. Hmm. I think in some ways it comes down to the same literary, that's the moth, and uh, comedy, which is a storytelling show at a comedy club like The Dump was, uh, with The Dump. And, uh, you know, ultimately, I think in some ways I still do agree with that, just because uh, lesson learning is different from something like that happened to me once and I never thought of it that way, although that second one is lesson learning, Mm -hmm. you know, but... you know, some of my favorite things I actually ever saw at the dump were like, uh, I remember seeing a woman go up there and talk about getting assaulted on the subway and her jokes about this were so strong. The whole hmm. experience about the rest of the car and the guy who did it and how she felt and all these really good jokes. And I, it was exactly what I was talking to you about. I was like, she's owning this. She is owning this like she horrible thing happened to her we're all laughing out here she's killing on stage this is a positive beautiful thing um there's a there's an ink there's an ember in that of the fires in the mirror experience right like you're allowed you can do that yes absolutely and um i think ultimately like 
look, l- lessons are lessons are good. And and like I I did uh, Are You a Robot, this one man show about phone banking because I wanted to also make activism seem easy and fun. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, to be honest, I have done activism because other people made it seem easy and fun. So I'm just trying to do what people did for me, you know, which is more of like a lesson-y type of thing. But a lot of times it's just like that give an experience and then a lot of people get something from that. Like I just keep going back to last night because it's very fresh on our minds. And and Sam, again, I'm so, I was like, should we get a beer? I'm like, we're going to ruin the, we're going to ruin the podcast. (laughs) If we get a beer, we'll be like, um, yeah, Yeah. like, uh, the beer we had last night, right? you know, this is the beer. This is the beer. Exactly. (laughs) But, um, Medical stories. Every time people perform medical stories, I'm like, they're owning it. This terrible thing happened to them, and they're 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 having to deal with the copays and the doctors and the bad bedside manner, and they're mm-hmm. in the room with the other person, and and the and the 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 side effects are kicking in, and all these things. Those stories are so cathartic. There's not necessarily a lesson in them, but we all have bodies. They're all going to break in some way or another. They all have broken. They've all been broken, and the catharsis of medical stories is just so deep. It's some mm-hmm. of my favorite storytelling. You know? Yeah. And and that, I mean, you can get that, I guess. I don't go to the moth that often, but I know you can get that at the moth. But I do think, I do think when it's cut in with comedy, there is something deeper that grabs me at least, you uh-huh. know, and, and that I want to do it in that style more. Yeah. And I I have an ice cream truck outside. We're doing the entertainer, yeah. by the way. That's what the ice cream. I was just like, as we're talking about, like, it can't be too literary. It has to be entertaining. And then the ice cream truck with the entertainer goes by. That's a great sound one. Yeah. How apt. How yeah. apt. Um, I, I've just decided in this moment to not edit that out. Yes. Um, great. Wonderful. So I'm tempted. Tell me, I have a thought about why the idea of experience plus comedy feels deeper to you based on what we've been saying, but tell me a little bit more about that. Hmm. Oh, God. Why? Just the most simple base thing is that it's more entertaining and fun. And mm-hmm. and I think ultimately I do, uh, you know, love the, the indie stuff and the small stuff. And I love all this theater where you're just in a room that's a giant bed and mm-hmm. you can hardly understand what's going on, but you feel something, you know, and... I love going to the Whitney and I can't explain it to you, but I can tell you what it makes me think of that mm-hmm. exhibit. I mm-hmm. love abstract surreal. I mean, David Lynch changed my life too. If yeah. you want to just talk about reframing how you see things, you know, like people are just like, it doesn't make sense. And I'm like, I have goosebumps and I'm crying. Yep. I don't know <laughs> what story wise is happening, but I am um, have goosebumps and I'm crying. Okay. Uh, we're definitely going to talk about blue velvet next, yeah, but <laughs> that's my favorite one too, which I also think actually it has really, the most- I think that has the most coherent story mm-hmm. and like that this leads to that leads to that. And it's just like the, you know, um, I, I've had so many moments like, look at that clock in two minutes. You're not going to believe what I just told you. I'm yeah. like, what is he going to say? <laughs> yes, you know, like, yes, um, yes. but, uh, oh man, I don't want to, uh, go too off on it, but I do think something in that having it be fun, having it be funny and also having that, yeah, uh, it, it does. It is that spoonful of sugar, I guess, you know, sure. that makes the medicine go down. Yeah. But you know what it also is, I think, is you're talking about the difference between theater and therapy. Yes. Which, oh my goodness. Oh God. I, you know, I was guest hosting my, my, a friend's open mic 
at Hall Yards, uh, at this guy, uh, Rob Penty's show, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, storytelling at Hall Yards years ago. And there's someone came back from the bar, and I will never forget. It was a pretty good show, and we, you know, it was half booked and half mic'd. And at the very end, uh, someone, I was about to be like, thank you all for coming, but someone raised their hand, like, <laughs> like this is school. And I said, yeah, 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 what's going on? And he said, uh, thank you all so much. I really had a good time, but what's the difference between this and what happens in therapy? Uh-huh. And I was kind of humiliated, uh, but also I think uh, he might've been paying us a compliment. Yes, maybe? I think so. Yeah. Well, if we go with the example that you, I thought of this because of the example you cited from the dump about yeah. the woman going on stage talking about this subway assault, which is a horrifying thing to have happen that's horrifying to think about. That's horrifying horrifying to sit in presence with. And we can imagine a version of that story where someone with an experience like that goes in front of an audience and just says, this thing happened to me and just describes it. Yeah. That is that person. I'm not saying there's no value to a space where someone can do that, but in a show context... That is that person asking the audience to play therapist, really. Yeah, for yeah. Them, to hold emotional space that nobody who came to that show came to that show expecting to have to hold that much heaviness. But if the person does what you're describing this woman doing, which is tell it as a story that she has found jokes in, then it has become theater. She has taken this experience and alchemized it into something else that clearly is nourishing for her to do, but also delivers an experience to the audience that is surprising and challenging and in these perverse ways delightful for them. And, you know, you've been talking about an appreciation for theater as the root of all this throughout our whole conversation. So it makes sense to me that you would uh, be drawn to that. This makes me want to ask you something else about your work, which is... I f- and I apologize for looking at my notes, but oh, I just no, want to make no sure problem. I get this right. Um, Thank you for having notes. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. absolutely. Um, I'm just going to read you what I wrote, which feels super corny. But um, you seem interested in how we as humans navigate our basest impulses. And I wrote down food, sex, sleep, violence, racism. Your work is very often concerned with these subjects. Um, like one of the, my favorite things you ever did is you had this YouTube series you did called old foods yeah, yeah. where you would talk about just like vintage foods that you remember existing and a little bit of context around them. These seem to be subjects that you are interested in exploring in your work. Do you agree? <laughs> yeah. Like, um, I think uh, just to give one example, like the one from Old Foods that I'm most proud of is that very briefly Baskin Robbins had a flavor called Last Mango in Paradise. And I was with an adult and they were like, that's like uh, Last Tango in Paris is what it was. (laughs) And then I read about that movie and then I read that there is a scene where someone uses butter as sexual lubricant. And I think I was like, eight years old right. and I was reading about that and pretty sure that's how I learned about sexual lubricants. Right. Um, um, like, like I was just like, is that, is that a, that's the thing? Is that how that's going to be? I guess 
public school sex ed was good enough that I'm like, well, no, no, you know, you know, you know, there's dairy and infection and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, all the, but, but I just, I, I remember being like, what, what, what? Mm-hmm. And I could hardly find anything on the history of that flavor. Um, mm-hmm. So that's where it came from. So right there, I mean, you got sex, mm-hmm. you got food, you got being like exposed to something at a young age. That, that was, that was all in there. Um, and all those base desires, I, 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 I appreciate that. That's very kind. I, I obviously am not alone. The, those are all things that the, the people are so interested in. But yeah, a lot of those do get me, get me, me you know, my heart set, set, sets my heart on fire. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, the best theater is about those things, right? And our attempt to be a person who's showing up in the world. Um, responsibly in spite of the fact that we have unhealthy inclinations around all this stuff. I mean, like the one thing that's not on this list probably is like substances. Yes. Um, But that, that would be the other thing that we would maybe put on such a list. Um, One of the reasons that it sticks out to me that you like to write about these subjects and consider them in your storytelling is that you, as we have discussed, had these youthful experiences in conservative to orthodox religious environments. And I'm wondering if you see a connection between your interest in these subjects as worthy of exploration and the fact that in those religious contexts, I am imagining you were told like, nope, we don't talk about that. Hmm. I mean, the, the single biggest thing that Judaism gave me, and really it's the Jewish upbringing, because I still do a couple of the holidays, you mm-hmm. know, I fast on Yom Kippur, you know, go to my hometown for Passover, light the candles for Hanukkah, but I'm not going every weekend, you know, and mm-hmm. I don't, you know, uh, pfft, man, those lions would eat in Daniel, it doesn't make sense. Like, you know, all, all <laughs> these things, you know, like all, all this stuff I was taught. But, um, you know, it really was interesting uh, having white privilege uh, mm-hmm. as a this is the color of my skin, but like uh, dealing with anti-Semitism as a kid, and you know, just honestly, just leaving on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and people people knowing, and just the just like the barrage of Jew jokes. And I am just kidding, you know. It mm-hmm. reminds me a lot of just like the just asking questions, people, yeah. and yeah. and that really formed everything. And this kind of um, understanding of like, wow, you know, I just go to this place on on. Uh, on, you know, uh, Sunday, Wednesday, and Saturday, and I do this thing, we do these rituals, and, you know, it's not too similar to, to you going where you're going on Sunday and Wednesday, and, and your rituals, and your stuff, and all that, and yet, like, people, like, because there's not as many of us, like, like this, this hatred that's completely irrational. Yeah. And that shaped so what I mean, like what an experience to uh-huh. have come out of. It's not even as much of a trauma as a framing for yes. me. Yeah. Yes. It, to, to try to understand and have intersectionality and, and understand, you know, re- respectfully understand, but just be like, oh, well, you know, and and all the divide and conquer that still exists in Judaism, talking to my parents about Israel, we don't need to go too into it, but the bad, the push and pull over the nationalism of religion. And, oh, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and like, just to, just to like, is one thing is like, sometimes, um, 
like with that issue, it, it makes me understand stuff with like colorism in, in mm-hmm. the black community or, or, or understand, um, you know, uh, like homophobia in certain other communities or, or, or yeah, but just, it mm-hmm. gives me this, the, the, my Jewish upbringing gave me a point of reference and an interest and, and a care about a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. That was the biggest thing it gave me. And I do mention the white privilege just because it is, I mean, I have my dad's last name. My dad converted. My dad like super believes in Judaism. Uh, <laughs> but I have the, you know, like I come from like all these like uh, Irish Lawsons, you know, mm-hmm. um, my name is not David Cohen, which is my mom's last name. So mm-hmm. I guess like there's, there's some passing in there too, but that's the biggest thing the Judaism gave me is is dealing with that difference and uh, the understanding of the irrationality of any hate that comes from that. And here you are in your storytelling talking about things we all share. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I, I mean, tell me if I'm going too far here, but like that strikes me as maybe what is so dynamic in hearing you look into these subjects is that you have an experience of being made to seem different when, as you are so aptly pointing out, like there is, like, just to join you in that again, like, an experience I've had a number of times is like, I didn't grow up observantly Jewish at all, but I have had the experience when people find out that I am of Jewish heritage. They're like, so yarmulkes, like, what's that about? And it's like, so eating crackers on Sunday and pretending it's a body, like, what's that about? Like, there's no difference between these things. But Jewishness, as you pointed out, because there's fewer uh, it, it, be, it it's like made more curious. But so here you have this experience of difference and that creates a frame through which you can examine sameness, sh- sameness that we don't talk about. Food, sex, violence, racism, these sorts of things. Is that, is that a fair jump to make? Uh, I kind of don't see why not. I, 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 (laughs) Sam, I'm trying to, every time I'm just like, oh no, I hope I have a good answer. But yeah, yeah, I I think that's, I think that's absolutely fair. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just, just Mm -hmm. trying to just find common ground and, you know, I can only be David Lawson. I can only be me. Oh yeah. So, and and trying to take that experience, but, but in particular growing up Jewish, uh, really, really gave that that, that from me. And, and you mentioned the Orthodox stuff and I mean, I, uh, you know, I don't want to be separated from the women in my life and I, mm-hmm. I and I have problems with the yeshivas and uh I don't really think religion and nationalism should uh, go hand in hand I'm especially the I'm one I was raised in and all, all all of this stuff that 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 I think and uh and uh yes yeah and and within all of those things I just said there's so many other different backgrounds of life that have so much similarities mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and the thing is 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 trying to to speak to my own and not being like I get it it's the same it's the <laughs> same thing like homophobia in that community must be the same as a right. transphobia in this community you know but but yes, it gives me a perspective that 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 I'm thankful to have yeah well, this is actually almost exactly where we started is. You're not talking about identifying with things that it makes no sense for you to identify with. You're talking about recognition. I recognize in your experience some things that I have a relationship with from my own experience. I'm not trying to say my experience of anti-Semitism is the same as your experience of racism or uh, homophobia. But I recognize some shared uh, elements of that and it creates space. And... 
that's exactly what you said your goal with storytelling is. And, and ultimately, like the thing I think a lot of the time is it ultimately comes down to it's got to be better than this. Like it's mm-hmm. got there has to be a better way to do things than mm-hmm. this, you know, that like uh, is it, what I think a lot of the times like see, seeing bigotry and ha- hatred and stuff like that and inequities. Uh, a lot of that does come down to, to, to this just like. Well, uh, the the people at uh, W.T. Woodson High School making fun of me for not being in school in Yom Kippur doesn't make any more sense than insert problem here. So uh, there's got to be a better way than this. Yeah. 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 It, it, it shines a light towards, towards a better way. Yeah. Just a little more understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the last thing, honestly, is the thing that you have been avoiding talking about, which I appreciate, but there's no need to avoid, which is sports. Oh, yeah. Um, this is a shared interest of ours. And I heard you say, I, th- I think maybe in that same Will Carey interview, you said like, oh, well, there's a direct connection between sports and performance because there's it's theatricality. Mm-hmm. But it, earlier in this conversation, you talked about finding an early avenue of expression in Mr. Heflin's class through getting to do this sports report. So what, what do you remember connecting with about sports as a kid? Like what, what activated you about it? Hmm. It's hard to answer as a kid. The, uh, I could speak more to the theatricality mm-hmm. in a way, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, when I'm on stage trying to get to the end of, of the thing I wanted to do that night, which is, it's kind of similar to like, well, we got to get these 27 outs, you know, yeah. or, or uh-huh. just like, or just like, oh, dang, that's, I'm down 0-2. Like, I got to, I got to get back in the count here. Am I swinging here? Am I taking here? Like, what's mm-hmm. it going to do next? You know, like, oh, that one, not so much. Like, making an adjustment again when mm-hmm. things aren't going well. I, I, I know I said I rehearse a lot, but, mm-hmm. but finding stuff like that. But I do want to answer your your question about as a child. You know, it, it, my dad was a big sports guy. Um, he played uh, high school football, and he wasn't like the like Bruce Springsteen glory days guy. He wasn't <laughs> like you know he was past it. It was all fine. But but he loved going and, and just like. I think I really got instilled in me as like, I, I love places, I love cities and, and, and like, mm-hmm. that is such a civic thing that exists. Like, cause it's so irrational, you know, none of these people are from here, but it's like, oh yeah, but they played here 81 times this year. And yeah. you know, this is everybody's coming off the, the, the train to see here. Mm-hmm. And Hey, if it happens, like, Hey, you, you show up to the game and they came back in the eighth inning and there was 50,000 people screaming. And that's a good thing that happens there mm-hmm. every night on that night, you know? And, and I think I, it really, it tied into that to actually go back into the midnight disease, uh, before DC got the team in 2005, I would have to go up to see your beloved Baltimore Orioles. Uh, what a year they're having, by the way, congratulations. (laughs) I'm knocking on wood that it continues. I had a lot to do with it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) See the irrationality, right? (laughs) Right. Like, you know, uh, all all that area. Cause I bought this baseball hat. It's all me. But, um, you know, I just remember being at extra innings games and I had the long drive back and I'd be like, I'm going to go to bed at one in the morning. Wow. (laughs) You know, wow, wow. Even still when I'm at extra inning games and I look around, I'm like, oh, these kids, they're out late. Wow, here in in Queens, this is so exciting. Here in the Bronx, it's so exciting. Um, But it's all, it's so many of the same feelings I get. Like, Mm -hmm. wow, God, that that was, those jokes were so funny. Or, wow, that ending of that play was just devastating. I'm going to be thinking about that last scene. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with like, oh my goodness, I can't believe, I didn't think, I thought that was going to go foul. I can't believe that went out. Or, you know, I'm using baseball because I think that's both of our favorite sport. And so much of it goes goes hand in hand. Um, 
And uh, actually, I think I have one more thing I want to mention. Please, you know, please. Well, just to say quickly yeah, before you yeah. get to that, I hear a resonance in what you're describing also with this idea you were just talking about of like, it could be better. Yeah. Because there's also hmm. a thing in sports of uh, like the cliche version is like maybe next year. But there's also like you're watching a guy who's in like an 0 for 26 slump and he hits a double and you're like, this is it. This is where it all turns around. And it is such a way of staying in touch with the possibility of a of improvement. Yes. The possibility of somebody figuring something out that seems impossible. I mean, I I, I I have friends who roll their eyes at this, but so the Nationals have been terrible the last few years, but through this, you've we've gotten things like like a 32-year-old making the all-rookie team after yeah. 10 years in the yeah. minors, Joey yeah. Manessas. I'm like, what a story! Yeah. That doesn't happen. There's not a roster spot for him on the Yankees, yeah. but there was on the terrible Nationals, right. and that's right. where it came from. The thing that I wanted to say to you, Sam, uh, is that... Um, you know, I have all these ideas for for things I want to perform, but it's just about a big world thing that I can't find the small world part of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, just since you did so much research, and I really do appreciate all the research you did for this, you know, um, the when I heard you were doing the rumor, which I listened to all of, and I really enjoyed Sam. Thank you. I, I was like, mm, what's you know, is this just going to be a straight documentary? And that scene, the beginning with the guy at the party being like, "I worked security at Camden Yards," <laughs> right. right? And that, that it was yeah. a security guy, and it all happened. Uh-huh. That the whole story is true. Kevin Costner uh-huh. and uh-huh. Calipkin's wife and delaying uh-huh. the game, and it's all true. And what I really admire about that, the thing that I'm trying to work on with some ideas I have for shows are where is my in? Why am I standing on stage talking uh-huh. about it? Uh-huh. And you found that in so well with the rumor. In particular, oh, that you. first scene. And and I know I've told you this before. When you tell Jeff Rebelay about the home run, you oh, remember man. him hitting. And, and you and you you added this first person thing to it that really really made it pop in in a great way. Yeah. Thank you, David. That's that's extremely kind of you. That's extremely kind. Thank you. I, that means a lot. And like, I, you know, it's so interesting because in a way what you're very generously recognizing in those moments, I think is related to everything we've been talking about. Because I think my attempt to use moments like that as a way into a story is my own version of recognition. It's my own version of, I'll just share this thing that is true to my experience um, in the, it, it, even though it feels very, very specific and uh, probably not literally relatable to anybody else, perhaps it will contain the kernel of something that someone else can connect with, and then they'll be on board with this other story that I want to tell, to your point. Um, and so really, you know, I think it's, I think it's a shared impulse. It's, it's, it's just another version of what you're saying about, like, I bring an experience of recognizing the irrationality of this anti-Semitism and like naming the gap between what someone is saying to me and what actually makes reasonable sense. Like your impulse to do that. I don't know. I think these are, these impulses are of a piece. So um, 
may we both continue to follow these impulses. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hell yeah, brother. <laughs> I, I, I recently heard someone say that's uh, the best phrase you can say to someone. <laughs> I, don't yeah, know. I, I can't believe it. that's what we're ending on. Uh, hell yeah, everybody. <laughs> well, I, I think it's actually great because my last question to people is usually, and you can answer it differently if you want, but my last question to people is usually, um, do you have a mantra? Um, and hell yeah, brother is a pretty good mantra. I, I actually do have a better one, which I've been thinking about a Tell lot me. lately, which is that all like, uh, why do I love doing all this? Any form of art of anything? Oh, it's just, we got to feel less alone. That's, that's the big one. That's like the one I really, I'm just like, that's the, that's the whole wellspring right there. I got to feel less alone. Yeah. Hell yeah, brother. Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to David Lawson for joining me on the show today. Be sure to check out Horror Helps if you're going to be in New York on October 19th. Check the show notes for links to get tickets for that show and just find more of David's work online. Don't forget to come back on Friday for Dingmantics, where we're going to talk about the ethics of invention on stage. And we are going to have a surprise guest. Our show art is by M.K. Cummins. And if you have thoughts on anything that you have heard on The Midnight Disease, please don't hesitate to drop me a line. Midnight at WALT.FM is the email address. I will talk to you on Friday. And thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. Until then, keep driving. You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.